so we're all ready to get back to it. After missing last week, hopefully all of you guys who weren't here last week caught the last episode. Um, so hopefully it's nice and fresh. Um, so tonight we're going to finish talking about uh, God's covenant with Abraham. Did everybody grab an outline? Mike, did you get an outline? Perfect. And Paul, so you guys have yours? Excellent. All right. Um, so let me open up a prayer, and then we'll just jump right in. Father, we do thank you so much for this evening, Lord. Thank you for bringing your people out uh, for this time to dive into your word and to really try to deepen our understanding of it. Lord, I pray that you would please be increasing our knowledge and help us, Lord, as we grow in knowledge, to also grow in application, Lord, in, uh, in, in putting the scripture to work in our lives. Father, I do pray that we would uh, grow with, uh, deeper in love with you, Lord God, that our worship would be more full, more sincere, and uh, just more... Uh, emphatic, Lord God, as we better understand your great work of salvation, Lord. Uh, it really is incredible, Lord. You are almighty God. You reign over all things. And so, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we ask for your grace as we seek to better understand you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to be looking at Genesis 17. This is the last part of God's covenant with Abraham. This section completes um, the Abrahamic covenant. So let me just read for us Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. Um, That's going to be our main text for tonight, but there's a whole lot to go over in it. So Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1, it says this, that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So like I mentioned, uh, this installment, this is the final, uh, I guess the final installment you can say of the Abrahamic covenant. So last time we looked at chapters 12 and 15. And if you remember, in chapter 12 is when God promises that he's going to make this covenant. Chapter 15, when Abraham has the vision of God and God passes through the animal carcasses and takes that oath, that's when the promises are ratified into a covenant. And then here in chapter 17 is, uh, like I said, the final installment where there's a slight expansion of the covenant and then the seal of the covenant is, is given. And... It's important for us to remember, as we see this uh, this covenant kind of broken up in stages, that this isn't God changing or adjusting his plans or, um, you know, or altering anything, but this is God revealing his eternal plan historically in stages. And it's similar, the way that God reveals the mystery of Christ that we've been talking about from the promise in the Garden of Eden all through the Old Testament until the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ, that there's the step-by-step historical revelation of the mystery of Christ. Um, In a similar way, what God is doing with Abraham, and then later even throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is revealing the Old Covenant in stages, beginning with the promise of it in chapter 12, ratification in chapter 15, and then sealing it here in this chapter. And so uh, part of the reason for this, uh, you know, another part of the reason for this revealing in stages is it does uh, exemplify Abraham's faith, that God in this way is putting Abraham's faith, faith to the test. You remember He makes the promise. Then in chapter 15, Abraham says, God, how long am I going to wait? When are you going to give me this offspring? And now we see Abraham 99 years old and still without the fulfillment of the promise. And throughout this, and we get, we'll we'll talk about this more when we look at how Paul treats this in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that this is a great example of the steadfastness of Abraham's faith that as he waited for the fulfillment of the promises and and the fulfillment of the covenant, he never wavered in his faith in God, and that points forward to the kind of faith that we are to have in Christ. And like I said, at the end, we're going to look at some New Testament passages that, that communicate this very thing. So, important for us to remember, Genesis 12, 15, and 17 together form the Abrahamic covenant. And throughout Scripture, in the New Testament, whenever... The, uh, the saints, whenever the writers of scripture look back and refer to the promises and the covenant that God made to Abraham, it's all, this whole section is in view, you know, and you, you get quoted all the time, chapter 15, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, chapter 12, that, you know, God is going to bless the nations through Abraham, circumcision, chapter 17, it's all one covenant unit. Um, so what I want to do tonight is start to just look at the covenant like we have with all the rest of the covenants in Scripture so far at those five major elements of a covenant, the precepts, the promises, 
the federal headship, the delegation of dominion, and sanctions. We're going to look at those for the Abrahamic covenant and then talk about some of the implications because the covenant with Abraham is so essential for us to understand. If we get this wrong, then we're going to misunderstand a lot of the Old Testament because the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament revelation. And really Moses and David, it just it, those are basically just expansions of this foundational covenant with Abraham. But it's important to know, as we talk about this tonight in circumcision, that nothing in chapter 17 alters or changes any of the promises that God made that we talked about last time. Uh, the This is merely a further revelation of God's plan to make a nation from Abraham and then from that nation to bring his Christ into the world who would bless all the nations. That's God's yeah. grand plan. Nothing about circumcision changes that. So I want us to understand that from the outset. Is there any questions to this point? Excellent. So just briefly, um, we'll go through those elements of the covenant. So first is the promises. And we talked at length about this last time, so we won't go into detail. But you remember the promises that God made to Abraham were a multitude of offspring, a nation that would be ruled by kings from Abraham's own offspring, and then that transnational blessing that from Abraham's offspring would come this blessing to all the nations. Those are the promises of this covenant. And in chapter 17, we get a further emphasis, first of all, on that the blessing that was to come. That's kind of the core promise of the Abrahamic covenant, is that through this covenant, God is going to bring this blessing into the world. And so we kind of get a little bit more of a focus on that here in chapter 17. Even if you look at, um, at verse 4, God says, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then again in verse 5, he says, uh, You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you into nations. So in view here in chapter 17, there's an emphasis that the, the physical singular nation that was going to come out of Abraham's offspring is not the end goal. This isn't God's ultimate final plan that the nation of Israel, like we talked about last time, ultimately does not exist for itself, but it exists for the sake of bringing the Christ into the world who would then uh, bring all these nations under the one rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So, here in chapter 17, before circumcision is given as a command, there's a special focus on that blessing that's going to incorporate the plural nations, not just the physical nation of Israel. And then there's one other additional promise that's made in chapter 17. And we find this promise in verses 7 and 8. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Um, this is the first time that we see that kind of language, I will be their God. You know, I will be God to you. You remember... 
in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned at the fall, uh, you know, Eden was this, like we talked at length about this special temple kingdom. It was a kingdom, but it wasn't like just any other kingdom. There was the special presence of God there. And we talked early on about how all the kingdoms throughout the rest of Scripture are kind of modeled after Eden. That Eden is the prototype that all the rest are kind of modeled after until you get to the consummation and the river of life and the tree of life and all that. So at the fall, man's curse was that he was cut off from that intimate fellowship with God. He was cast out of the presence of God, cast out of the garden. Well, now God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a kingdom, but it's not going to be just like any other kingdom like the rest of the nations around him at that time. But specifically, this would be a kingdom where God has an intimate relationship with the people of that nation, where he says, I will be their God. And you get this then throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the that that's included in the Abrahamic covenant that the descendants of Abraham were going to experience an intimate fellowship with God that was reminiscent of what it was like in Eden. It's not the same thing, but it is reminiscent of it. Um, And so Israel, again, will be a totally unique nation. Israel, like Eden, was going to be a temple kingdom, a kingdom where God is present. And we get this especially when we get to... um, you know, when we start talking about Moses and you get to the tabernacle, really the whole book of Exodus, the climax of the book of Exodus is the building of the tabernacle when Israel becomes a nation and then here's God specially present in Israel. So that's a major element of the Abrahamic covenant is that special presence of God. So that, in addition to the, all the other promises we've talked about, those are the, the promises from God in this covenant. The precepts of the covenant, which we're going to talk more about a little bit later. So this is, remember, the precepts are the covenant law for man. This is God telling man, you will do this in my covenant. And so um, the precepts, first of all, God makes the command to Abraham in 17 verse 1. He appeared to him and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And so God demands of Abraham here faithful obedience, imitation of God. He demands from Abraham to live his life before the face of God, a life oriented to God and in imitation of God. Now, remember, we talked earlier about how every single creature of God, just by virtue of being a creature, is obligated to obey all of God's commands. Every single person is bound to obey God's moral law, his creation law, whatever you want to call it, that universal law that flows from his character. Every person must obey that, and there's no reward for it. That's just what we're creatures. We have to do it. But here, God includes... uh, adherence to his moral law and this gets much more expanded with Moses but here in seed form he says walk before me and be blameless that is the command for Abraham to conform himself to God's moral law now with the promise of blessing attached to it so that's one of the precepts Um, but secondly and more significantly Uh, or at least more prominently in this covenant, is the law of circumcision. So verse 9, 
God says to Abraham, as for you, and that's a very specific covenantal language. It's right after God says, I'm going to do this. Now here's what you're going to do. Uh, You shall keep my covenant. This is my covenant. Verse 10. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So the two aspects of the covenant law for man, adherence to God's moral law, and the positive law of circumcision. And remember we've talked about positive law. That's a law that in and of itself is morally indifferent, right? By itself, there's nothing righteous about being circumcised, nothing wicked about being uncircumcised. It's morally indifferent, but God attaches significance to it. God makes it a commandment. And so once God makes it a commandment, now it's sinful for Abraham's offspring to disobey that. So the, uh, the precepts of this covenant are the moral law of God and the law of circumcision. And these, when we get to Moses in the next few weeks, are going to expand to encompass the whole written code of the Ten Commandments and the application of them in the, in the case law. And circumcision expands into the whole ceremonial law. Remember, that's what Paul says in Galatians, he says, if you accept circumcision, you are bound to the whole law. Speaking of the ceremonial law, circumcision is the foundation for all the rest of the food laws and the, the laws about the kinds of clothes Israelites could wear and the way they had to grow their hair and all these things. Everything that set the Israelites apart. Yes, circumcision is the foundation for all of that. So when we get to Moses, don't be confused. It's all rooted right here with Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless. That's the moral law. Circumcision, that's the ceremonial law. So those are the precepts of the covenant. Any questions or anything yet? It's really interesting. It's really cool to see, like, especially with the moral law, that it's already like that before the giving of the commandments. Absolutely. Yep. The statutes and being blameless. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. codified, but it's, it's right. present. It was living according to that you know, testimony of the conscience and the testimony of nature. Um, and then it's only later on, you're right, that we get the actual written form of the law. And that's one of the great benefits of being in the Abrahamic covenant that Paul talks about in Romans. They have the law. Like, you know, that's a huge blessing. And we're going to talk a lot more about circumcision, especially here in a little bit. Um, so the third element, federal headship. Remember, federal headship is the one representative of the covenant who represents all those who are under his headship. And so if you want to find out who is in a covenant... Ask, well, who is the federal head? So when we talked about Adam, it was all of his descendants, meaning all of us. When we talked about Noah, uh, with the you know the covenant of common grace that God made, all of Noah's descendants. That means we are all in that covenant. For Abraham here, he is appointed as the federal head over his physical offspring, and there's a great emphasis on the physical offspring of Abraham, you and your physical descendants. Um, again, you see it throughout, and here in chapter 17, I mean, two, three, four times, God says, you and your offspring after you, and continually then throughout Scripture, and even you know into the New Testament, the Jews are constantly appealing to, we have this lineage from Abraham. That's part of why the Old Testament is so full of all these genealogies, because it was so important, if you were a, uh, if you were a participant in the covenant, you had to be related to Abraham, and so you had to have your genealogy, you had to have your root in him. So the covenant blessings are promised to the physical offspring of Abraham. The physical offspring have a right to these blessings, um, 
And again, there's a place where we can get a little bit confused. So last week we talked about how we have to think of this covenant on two levels, the real, actual, historical, physical level, and then the typological level. What did it point forward to? What's the greater, fuller reality, the fuller meaning in Christ? And as we're going to talk about later on even tonight, Abraham's faith was a type that pointed forward to our faith in Christ. And so we can rightly say that Abraham, like Paul does, is the father of all the faithful in terms of spiritually we are offspring of Abraham. But physically, for this covenant, the covenant of circumcision, it was literal blood descent from Abraham. Or, like God says later on, any foreigner who wanted to participate in the covenant, who wanted to take on the obligations of the covenant and enjoy the blessings of the covenant, could do that as long as they submitted to the covenant law of circumcision. So you see, you know, somebody like Ruth is a great example of a foreigner who comes under the uh, under the blessing of the covenant and is attached to the covenant through her marriage into it. So there is that provision. Foreigners can come into the covenant, but all those born from Abraham's lineage are automatically in the covenant. They are born into it. This is a family covenant. Um, So there's the federal headship. Delegation of dominion, that's pretty simple. The land of Canaan is given to Abraham's offspring to be a kingdom that they would rule over. So remember, covenants are the way that God establishes authority. God delegates authority through covenants. And so you remember with Adam, Adam was given authority to rule as king in Eden on God's behalf. Uh, In the covenant with Noah, God gives authority to civil government when he gives the sword power to man to execute justice on his behalf to rule. Here with Abraham, God gives the descendants of Abraham the authority on his behalf to rule over the land of Canaan as a kingdom that was going to be set apart to God. Um, so they're under God. They're under his authority. The rulers of Israel are going to answer to God. They're given that authority um, to rule in the land of Canaan. And also worth noting, too, Israel was never to be an empire. God specifically said, this is the land I'm giving you to establish this kingdom. Israel was not supposed to go and you know conquer all the other nations around it that God hadn't given into its hand to, you know, to expand its borders like all the other nations at that time were doing. It was given a kingdom, a specific land in Canaan to rule over. And then the last element of the covenant, the thing that makes it a covenant, are the sanctions, the penalty. What happens if the covenant is broken? And this is where we're going to spend a lot of time tonight because this is where it's really important that we get this straight. So... In the Abrahamic covenant, the penalties for unfaithfulness work in both directions. Last time, we looked in detail at Genesis 15. We looked at God taking that self-maledictory oath on himself. When God passed through the animal carcasses, he made those promises to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you all this offspring. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bring a blessing through you. And Abraham said, God, how do I know that you're going to do this? And God showed him. He took this oath saying, essentially, if I do not fulfill these promises, then I myself will be accursed. 
That's what God says in chapter 15. Those are covenant sanctions where God says, I will fulfill these promises, and if I fail to do so, I will bear the curse. So that's one side of the sanctions. But now here in chapter 17, uh, with circumcision, God uh, adds sanctions to Abraham and to his offspring. And circumcision becomes the sign of the covenant. And remember, we talked about how a covenant sign oftentimes shows both the blessings of the covenant and the threatened curses of the covenant. So, for instance, remember the tree of life in Eden. The tree of life signified the blessing of the covenant, that if Adam was faithful, he was going to have free access to eat of the tree of life. But conversely, if Adam was unfaithful, uh, he was going to be cut off from access to the tree of life, cast out, unable to access its fruit, and so he would die. So in verse 14, God says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So right there you have explicit explicit sanctions placed on man, on Abraham and on his offspring if they're unfaithful to the covenant. And so with circumcision as the covenant sign, on the one side, circumcision represents the blessing of the covenant. It represents being separated from the unholy nations. It represents being set apart as holy to God. But then on the other side, circumcision represents the threatened curse of the covenant, that if you disobey, you're going to be cut off, just like that flesh is cut off. You're going to be cut off from the blessings, cut off from your people, cut off from the promises of the covenant. So very explicit sanctions put both on God and on man. And this is where we can, if we're not careful, we can get a little bit confused because in the past we've looked at the covenants and we've looked at the sanctions and we've seen, okay, the direction of the sanctions is going to tell us, is this a grace covenant or a works covenant? So with Adam, if Adam failed to obey the covenant, he would surely die. That's a works covenant. The sanctions are threatened against Adam. With the covenant with Noah, remember we talked about the rainbow, the bow and arrow pointed up to God, where God said, if I don't fulfill this covenant, I'll be cursed. That's a grace covenant. Man doesn't have to do anything to earn God's common grace. God promises it, and if he fails to uphold it, he suffers the consequences. But here we have the sanctions against God, which give this covenant a grace element, but then the sanctions against man also give it a works element. And if you remember back to the first week, those of you who were here for it, we talked about how it's very important with covenant theology, with all theology, but especially with covenant theology, that we don't kind of come up with this system or this model and then make that override everything. So then we take scripture and where scripture doesn't quite fit into our model, we kind of adjust it and shift it around to make it fit. We need to make our understanding, our model, our, you know, our system of covenant theology, it needs to arise out of Scripture, and it needs to be fitted to Scripture. So we can say, generally speaking, if there's sanctions against God, it's a grace covenant. If it's against man, it's a works covenant. But here, we have both. And so we can't say, as some would, of the... Um, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, that's a grace covenant, but then Moses comes and that's a works covenant. 
Abraham clearly has elements of grace and elements of works. It is both kinds of covenants. Um, And again, if we get this wrong, then it's going to be hard for us to get the rest of the Old Testament right. Because, uh, again, some models of covenant theology will say, well, the Abrahamic covenant, that is the covenant of grace. That is, you know, a straight line like that model we drew last time, the little diagram. There's a straight line from Abraham, Abraham to Christ. It's the same covenant, just one is in shadows, and then in Christ there's come the light. And then they'll say that with Moses, that's like a republication of God's covenant with Adam. That's God saying, if you obey this law, then you'll get life. That's not it at all. Moses and then later David both flow out of Abraham. They are expansions of the covenant with Abraham. They're the same at the root, at the foundational level. It's the same thing. Moses and David just expand on Abraham. So how do we understand this then? Is it, are, these, are these promises guaranteed by God's grace or do they depend on man's works? Because that's the real question. So first off, the promises, the land, the offspring, the blessing, all of that is guaranteed by God as an act of grace apart from any works of man. That's the first thing we need to understand. And we talked about that last week with chapter 15. That's what God taking that oath meant. God was guaranteeing by his own free grace that he was going to bring about all of of these blessings and uh, that no amount of sin or of unfaithfulness was going to cause God to go back on these promises. He would fulfill these. Absolutely, certainly, nothing could change it. And God is vindicated. Last time, remember, we looked at scripture and saw Israel was as many as the sand on the shore and that, you know, the kings, David and Solomon came from Israel and ultimately the blessed seed, the Christ came out of Israel. God did absolutely fulfill every single promise that he made to Abraham in time and in history. And he did this even though more often than not, Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. From the very beginning, Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. And if you just read the book of Judges, you see how unfaithful they were and how God would have been just by the law to disinherit every one of them because he had made that promise to Abraham and swore by his own self that he was going to do this. God saw the covenant through. And it's amazing that even after Israel forfeits the physical blessings, when Israel is exiled from the land, when they actually give up all those physical blessings, God still keeps a remnant. He still brings the people back into the land and he still brings the Christ through that same bloodline. It's amazing the way that God, you know, even the the kingly line of David did not die out until Christ came into the world, right? Because the, the last king of Judah wasn't executed, but he was brought into exile. And so that line stayed alive. God kept that promise that he made to Abraham. So the promises are guaranteed by grace. However, not every single individual born of Abraham is guaranteed to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. That individual... Uh, participation in the blessings depended on obedience to the covenant law. So corporately, 
The blessings are guaranteed by grace, but individually to enjoy them depends on obedience to the law. Does that make sense? This is why um, you can have, uh, you know, you have some members of Abraham's offspring who are disinherited, who are cast out, who lose their claim to the promises, but broadly and corporately, God, uh, he does ensure that Abraham's offspring receives the full blessing. If you guys would, turn to Exodus 32 for an example of this. And again, we're going to, starting next week, we'll get into Moses. And so we'll talk way more about all of this. But just turn to Exodus 32, and this is the golden calf. So this is when God is bringing Abraham's offspring into the land. He's making them a nation. He's getting ready to bring them into Canaan. He's just expand, giving them the written code of the moral law. Israel has said, we're going to obey this law. And almost immediately, the people together disobey the covenant law. They create these idols and bow down to them and worship them. And here's how God responds. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 9, God says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, and kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So what you have here is this amazing act of Moses' intercession. So Israel disobeys, they break the covenant. God says, I'm going to wipe out the entire offspring of Abraham except for Moses. Almost like what God said to Noah at the flood, I'm going to wipe out the whole human race except for you. That's almost the kind of disaster that Israel was facing as a nation after they made the golden calf. That God was going to you know, completely judge them, destroy them, except for Moses. Almost entirely. Remember, this incident with the golden calf is more than 400 years after Abraham. So that's 400 plus years of Abraham's offspring reproducing until they become a great nation. And God is talking about dwindling it all back down to one man going back to square one, just like he did with Abraham. So this is about as disastrous as it could get and about as close to God could get to uh, reneging on his promises, to going back on what he said to Abraham. And Moses, when he's interceding, he says to God, remember the oath that you swore to Abraham, that you said you would multiply his offspring and bring them into this land. And so because of that promise you made, relent from this disaster. And so you have God staying his hand. He doesn't wipe out the nation. But what happens to that generation? 
Every one of them, except for two, Joshua and Caleb, die in the wilderness and they don't get the physical blessings of the covenant with Abraham. So you see, on the one side, a whole generation of Abraham's offspring is disinherited. They don't get the blessings. But corporately, God sustains the nation. He brings up the next generation and that generation receives the blessings. So that's the principle you get with this covenant with Abraham. Corporately, yes, promises are guaranteed. They will be fulfilled. God will not go back. Individually, depends on your works, depends on obedience to the covenant law. Even (coughs) Moses himself, was disinherited from the physical blessings. Moses didn't get into the promised land. Moses broke the covenant, and so he is disinherited. He doesn't get the promised land, but the next generation still enters in. So ultimately, so we have chapters 12, 15, and 17. Do you guys have any questions on that right now? Great. So Genesis 12, 15, and 17, together the the scope of the Abrahamic covenant is that Abraham and his physical descendants are guaranteed by God's grace to be a great populous nation in the land of Eden of Eden in the land of Canaan who would be ruled by kings from their own offspring and from whom would come a blessing to all the nations and yet individual participation in the promises depended on obedience to the covenant law which was signified by the sign of circumcision. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And so this leads us to the question then, because we're talking about, well, the individuals had to work if they were going to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. So then the question that arises in our minds is that, does this mean that in the old covenant, salvation depended on works? Because we're here talking about, well, the offspring, they had to work, they had to obey the law to stay in the land, to maintain the blessings. So does that mean that salvation depends on works? And I hope that all of us understand, absolutely not. And this is, again, where it's so important for us to distinguish between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant in Christ. Just like we talked about with my little drawing last week, that If we confuse the two, if we say the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are the same thing, well, that means then if you had to work for the blessings with Abraham, then it follows you have to work for the blessings when it comes to Christ. And that was a whole problem in the New Testament that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But if we understand that the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant in Christ are two separate covenants that have two different purposes and different effects and have different promises, then that's not a problem. So it's important for us to just reiterate and understand that salvation, that being reconciled to God has only ever always come by faith alone through God's grace alone. And under the old covenant, the object of that faith was the, uh, the were, were the promises, the promised seed, the promised blessing to the nations. Later on, when you get to Moses, the promise that was carried in all of the institutions like the priesthood and the sacrifices or with David and the promise of the kingship. That was the object of faith. But it was that faith that reconciled someone to God under the old covenant for us under the new covenant. 
our faith is in the finished work, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ that we look back on. In both cases, the faith is in the same thing. It's in Christ. Just in the past, Christ was just a, a shadow. It was a promise. Now we look back on Christ in his historical finished work. But being reconciled to God has always... Go ahead. So with Moses, for instance, then, he wasn't allowed to come into his inheritance of the promised land, the physical promised land, but he didn't lose his inheritance with the Lord. He was so... Absolutely. Yes. Moses, and that's... And Moses is a great example of how these two things are not automatically connected. He was disinherited from the old covenant, but Moses is in heaven. Moses is with the Lord. He was not disinherited from uh, from the grace of God that would be in Christ. He had faith in the promises, even if he broke the law of the old covenant. Very important. And also important for us to, um, to keep in mind, the works of the old covenant were never intended to make someone right with God. Even when we get to Moses, again, there are some people who say, well, God gave the people the Ten Commandments and the people said we're going to do this. And if they would have just kept the Ten Commandments, then they would have been right with God. We're guilty in Adam. We're born dead in sin under a curse. It doesn't matter how well we might externally keep the law. The observance of the Old Covenant law, and especially the ceremonial law of circumcision, later the sacrifice and all of that, um, that was for enjoyment of the physical blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It did not make you right with God. Circumcision, sacrifices, all the rest were never intended to reconcile people to God. And exactly what you said, this is why someone like Moses could be cut off from the old covenant physical blessings and yet still receive the inheritance of God's grace, rest, um, and, and receive all the promises of Christ. And also worth noting as well, true obedience under the old covenant only ever came, just as it does with us today, as an outworking and a byproduct of faith in the promises. So it's not as if under the old covenant the people had to work and they could work and have true obedience to God. Like how David says in Psalm 51, God doesn't desire sacrifices. What he desires of his people is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the that that's true obedience to God. Or like God says in Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So don't think that it's all just about the external observance of the law. True obedience only came as a byproduct of true faith in the promises, just like it does today. Um, and, and that obedience never was meant to earn someone's salvation or to reconcile someone to God. The old covenant did not make people righteous. What the old covenant did, and part of why it was such a blessing, is that it called people to righteousness. It set people apart for righteousness, but it did not enable them to live righteously. Does that make sense? Because that's a new covenant promise. When we get to later on talking about the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, a promise of the new covenant is that God's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And he's going to actually enable us to obey him from the heart. The old covenant doesn't promise that. It does not make somebody able to keep the law. It calls them to keep the law, but it doesn't give them what they need to do it. 
Does that make sense? Perfect. And so, how are we looking on time? Oh, we're good. We're doing good on time. Which is good, because this next part might take a little time. (laughs) Turn over to Romans 4. Because this, I think part of the reason why we get so kind of muddled when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, and part of the reason why we want to make the covenant with Abraham uh, a direct line to the covenant of grace is because Paul uses Abraham consistently as this great example of faith. And so the Abrahamic covenant is really important to our understanding of the new covenant, even though they're not the same thing. So I want to look specifically at Romans 4 and Galatians 3, because these two together um, are really important in helping us understand what is going on with Abraham and its significance in pointing to Christ. And also, like I said, it's important that we get all this straight because if we're confused with Abraham, then by the, when we get to Moses, the confusion is just going to be multiplied because what happens with Moses is the Abrahamic covenant is multiplied because Abraham, uh, Israel becomes a nation. So we got to get straight at the foundation. So I'm going to read Romans 4, and we'll just make a few observations on it. And so keep in mind everything I've been saying about the works and the grace and all of that. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, While he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. 
In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so obviously there's way more there than we're able to cover tonight. That'll probably be like five sermons whenever you get to it. Um, but the main point that Paul is making there in Romans 4 is that he's taking the focus away from the physical promises to Abraham's physical offspring, and he's putting the focus on the nature of Abraham's faith. So, like I said, we have to consider the covenant of Abraham on both levels. The physical level, which is what we're talking about in Genesis, but then what it points to, the typological level, what it pointed to in Christ, which is what Paul is bringing out. So Paul here is not talking about the way that Abraham's offspring enjoyed the physical blessings like the land and all the rest. He's talking about how Abraham was reconciled to God, how Abraham was made right before God. And Paul is pointing to the fact that the promises, and specifically the promise of the righteous seed that was to come, were made before the command of circumcision. They were made apart from works. And so remember, God, he swore that oath in Genesis 15, guaranteeing the fulfillment of all of those promises before he commanded anything of Abraham, before he told Abraham to be circumcised. And it was Abraham's faith in the promise that was counted to him as righteousness, by grace and apart from works. Abraham's faith that he exercised in the promise of what God was going to do is what justified him, is what reconciled him to God, not the fact that he was circumcised. And the principle holds throughout Abraham's offspring. The way that every old covenant true believer was reconciled to God was the same way Abraham was, through faith in the promises, not by adherence to the law, not by being circumcised. Abraham's salvation was in that promise, and his faith was a type of the faith uh, that we now have in the finished work of Christ. It's the type of faith that ours should look like right now, um, and it depended nothing at all on the law. So for us, as New Covenant Christians, we look at Abraham, we see the example of his faith, and so we understand that yes, we are made right with God by faith alone, having nothing to do with our obedience or disobedience of the law. So don't get confused. The physical blessings for Abraham's offspring depended on obedience, but reconciliation to God always by faith. Um, then briefly I want to look at Galatians 3, so turn over there. This is the two big places in the New Testament where Paul goes into detail about Abraham and, and his significance for us and for the new covenant. Um, and Galatians, especially the whole book, is dealing with 
what do we do with the ceremonial law now that Christ has come? What do we do with circumcision and all the rest? So Galatians 3, I want to look at verses 1 through 9 and then verses 15 through 18. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it all was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then go down to verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul's focus there is that that proclamation of, a God, of the gospel, you know, what he says, was God proclaiming the gospel to Abraham, in you shall the nations be blessed. That was the seed of the gospel, because that was the promise of Christ. So that promise of the new covenant, the object of saving faith under the old covenant, was that promise. And that came before circumcision. And so Paul, in this case, is really laboring the point of the timeline that God made the promise to Abraham, and Abraham had faith in the promise before the law came. And you know, then he talks about 430 years afterward when Moses gave the law. That doesn't change the promise either. Circumcision didn't change the promise. Moses didn't change the promise. Reconciliation to God was always through faith in the promise that he was going to bring this righteous seed into the world and bless the nation the nations, I should say. And the accomplishment of this promise was guaranteed by God, according to his grace, apart from works from the beginning. <laughs> Nothing alters or changes that promise. And so no amount of obedience or disobedience would either uh, would change God's purpose or would qualify one to receive the promise or to lose it. it nothing to do with obedience. Does that make sense? Yeah, so circumcision, outward circumcision, even though that was an act of obedience, that doesn't really mean, like Paul says, anything in terms of salvation. That doesn't make you, like, you know, like baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Exactly. Because like Paul says, to just kind of connect with all this in Romans 2, um, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So that's like kind of gets at the heart of it. 
but a Jew is one inwardly in circumcision, mm-hmm. a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Exactly. It fits right in with everything right. that we're talking about. Yes, that it, and that's the big point that Paul's making, that being made right with God had nothing to do with circumcision. Now, when we get to the New Covenant, because you know, when we go too far down that road about you know the obedience doesn't make us right with God, you know, we're not saved by works, we can start getting down towards antinomianism. The law doesn't matter. When we get to the New Covenant, we're gonna see uh, the fruit, the 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 promise of the New Covenant that we're gonna have a new heart is going to result in more and more obedience. And so if we're professing to be members of the new covenant, Christians reconciled to God, and yet we're not bearing fruit of repentance and obedience, then that doesn't speak well to our profession. But we'll get there later on. But in both cases, in Romans and in Galatians, Paul is making the point that salvation has always depended on faith. With circumcision... Adherence to the law of circumcision, observation of the ceremonial law, that made a person an heir of the physical blessings of the old covenant, but it did not make one an heir of the promised blessing to the nations, right? Being circumcised, observing the law, walking before God, that meant that you could have the land and stay there. And when the people didn't do that, that's when they got kicked out. But... It didn't make you an heir of the promised blessing of the the righteous seed that was to come. And this is why, just like you mentioned about circumcision, requiring circumcision was absolutely unnecessary in the New Covenant. There's a, like I said, the almost the whole New Testament. One of the primary concerns of the New Testament is, what do we do now with circumcision and the whole ceremonial law? How do we square it that now the Jews and the Gentiles are both the people of God? Because um, the, the land promise was fulfilled. All the, all the physical promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the temple, the sacrifices, and all the rest were all fulfilled in Christ. The, the anti-type had arrived. That was Christ and his finished work. And so the whole principle of circumcision and adherence to the law to receive blessings was done away with. There was no need for, uh, for Gentiles to first become members of the Abrahamic covenant by being circumcised and then become members of the new covenant. You didn't have to go through Abraham. It was all about faith in Jesus Christ. And again, just like Paul says later on in Galatians 3, the law, circumcision, all the rest of it, they were never intended to give life. Paul says if if the law was intended to give life, then indeed salvation would be through the law but that wasn't the point of the law. It never was the point of the law. And that's good because a lot of people confuse that. Like people say, well, in the Old Testament, people were saved that way. Mm-hmm. Like trying to do this, being a good Jew, you know, following. And that's kind of what the Pharisees tried to do in a way, right? They, that's why Jesus said, yes. if you knew Moses, you would know me. You exactly. Know me because I, he wrote of me. But they were trying to do everything they could, you know, and they added on to the law. I'm sure you know, talk about that at some other point when we get to Moses, but they added, the Pharisees would add on, you know, to, to make sure that they were doing more than they even had to so that God might notice them and give them grace. You know, that's a hard way to live. Exactly. exactly. And that's the thing, because the Abrahamic covenant, it does connect Abraham's offspring physically to the Christ. Paul says that in Romans 11, that, you know, to the Jews is the covenant. And from their blood, from their offspring is the Christ. And so there is a physical connection to Christ 
under the Abrahamic covenant, but apart from faith in Christ, that's the only connection they have is a physical connection. And that was a big problem with the Jews of Jesus' day. The Pharisees, when John the Baptist says, don't presume to say we're offspring of Abraham, or Jesus who says, you claim Abraham as your father, but if you were truly sons of Abraham, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did, but instead you're doing the works of your father, the devil. That's That was the error they made. They thought that the physical connection to Abraham was enough to connect them to the Christ. But it only did so physically. To actually receive the blessings of the Christ, they needed faith in him uh, and in the work that he was doing. And so, very important. To be circumcised, that meant that you shared the blood relation to the Christ, but had nothing to do with whether or not you shared in the blessing of the Christ. Always by faith. And so, the reason for kind of the, the length and the detail of tonight's study is to kind of get us ready for Moses. Because like I said, when we start talking about Moses, this is when the offspring of Abraham become a kingdom. And so naturally, you know, when you have a kingdom, you got to have a law to govern the people. And so the law that comes through Moses just flows directly out of this law the moral law, walk before me and be blameless, and the ceremonial law, be circumcised. But if we keep in mind, don't get confused, because especially with Moses, that's where a lot of covenant theologies get a little muddy, because oftentimes what happens, people will try to say that, people will try to somehow twist Moses to make it a covenant of grace, or they'll say, this is just, you know, like you said, Salvation by works, just like with Adam. They have to do these works, and then they can be made right with God. Instead, we understand Moses is going to flow directly out of Abraham, and it's the exact same structure for the rest of the Old Testament. Just keep this structure in mind. The corporate blessings are guaranteed from God by his grace. Individual enjoyment of those blessings, those depend on works. That's why with Moses... People would get, you know, executed for breaking the law. People are going to get cast out of the land. People are going to get exiled because they're being cut off from the, the, the blessings of the old covenant. So keep that principle in mind. All throughout, salvation is always by grace through faith alone. Do you guys have anything else to add tonight? Or any questions about all that? Well, with the covenant of works with Adam, the reason we can't say that about the works of the law or anything else, Adam had the ability before the fall exactly. to keep that. Since Adam fell, we don't have the ability, so it has to be based on grace. Yes. But, but this last point, Luke, when you talked about um, promises of land, kings, trans- transitional blessings are guaranteed by God, those are the grace of God, and that individual enjoyment and blessing depend on works, obedience, could that be kind of likened, and I don't know if it can be, to... to uh, to Christians, um, that we are saved by grace. He provides everything for our salvation in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. But in our sanctification, in our in our living, we are called to walk in obedience. And when we walk in obedience, we do experience, I'm not going to say all the blessings of God, like you're going to be millionaires, but we do experience the enjoyment of God. When, when you're walking in deep obedience, right? Mm-hmm. You experience that, that um, the blessing of the Lord whatever the circumstance and, and kind of that enjoyment of the Lord in that. Would that be likened to this? Or I, I think that there's a connection there. There's, it is, there's a similarity. I think the big difference is that with the new covenant, 
there is that promise of a new heart. And so Christians will be sanctified. Now they're not always they're not going to be sanctified always consistently or fully or you know we're going to go through different periods of more obedience and less. But the promise of the new covenant, there's that new heart. And so we will bear fruit if we're truly in Christ, in covenant with him. But I do agree that enjoyment of blessing for us as Christian is largely dependent on the measure in which we're sanctified. Because if you're a Christian, but you're constantly giving in to your indwelling sin, and you're constantly kind of going back to your sin and disobedient, then you are going to suffer. Uh, yeah, you're going to suffer spiritually. And um, the way that God has designed the world, he has designed the world in, in such a way where recognizing and walking according to his law is going to lead to greater blessings. When you have, you know, when you're, when you have people who aren't stealing, when you have people who are not off committing adultery, we've seen what's happened in our own country the last several generations where adultery has become so widespread and that has led to a lot of brokenness. Whereas if you have people who are by and large living according to God's law and having good marriages and good families and children are honoring their parents and people are honoring authority. That's going to lead to God has designed the world where that kind of behavior generally leads to blessing, disobedience, ignoring God's law generally leads to curse and ultimately leads to death. And we're seeing that right now with all of the perversions of our culture, especially the sexual perversions that lead you know, straight line directly to death. So um, well, I say, like, oh, if I, if I keep God's law, if I'm a good little Christian, then I'm going to have all the blessings mm-hmm. before, I'm going to have a big house and everything. It's not that, but there's that peace with God and that, yes. and that enjoyment of the Lord and that kind of obedience and experience that kind of blessing, as opposed to when you're disobedient as Christians, you're going to pay, not that you're going to be put out of the covenant, but like you said, that, I see the actually like in Romans 6, we're not under the, under the law. We're raised with Christ. Exactly. So we're not in bondage to sin. So that's really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if we keep going back, and like I said, if you're walking according to the flesh, even as a Christian, but if you're constantly giving into your flesh, you're not going to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship with yes. God. You're going to be burdened by that sin. It's when we are repenting of our sin, drawing near to God, receiving that grace, walking in obedience. That's when... We're going to, you know, even if our material circumstances are crumbling down, we will be greatly blessed because we're going to be enjoying better fellowship with other Christians, better union with God. Um, You know, so I think a lot of Christians, if they're complaining, well, you know, my spiritual life just feels so dry. I just feel distant from God. I mean, more often than not, the problem is probably that you're giving in too much to your flesh and you're walking too much in your sin and you need to repent of your sin and draw near to God. And that's going to lead you to, you know, Deeper devotion, better worship, better fellowship, all of the rest. So all those blessings that come along with being yep. Christians' promises. But not that you're going to lose your life with promises, mm. you know, we might not exactly. the fullness of it. Even with Abraham, man, I mean, he was as faithful as could be, you know, man of faith in that way. But I love it because God is always faithful to his covenant. Because mm-hmm. Moses, or even Abraham... Went ahead with Hagar. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I got the promise from God. I know we're gonna do it. You know, we're gonna help God out here a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, try to go with Hagar and have that. And everyone was like, no, no, no. So Abraham wasn't. He still showed that he needed grace, right? Like yes. His faith, but he was faithful. He was. He wasn't perfect. Amen. And that's the grace of God. But mm-hmm. I, I just love 
even like uh, the nature of the gospel seen here early on, and then you made a great connection at the end, bringing it all together from, from Galatians. But like the, the grace of that, like the one nation to be set apart, to be the light, you know, how that special, um, as you put it, the, the, the special presence among Abraham's descendants, the Lord would have that. Mm-hmm. And that was to be, you know, a light unto the nations. So you have one nation set apart to be a light unto the nations, but ultimately you have one people of many nations. And that's mm-hmm. the gospel. Exactly. It's not like, oh, just like Israel say, or just like, you know, this nation is going to be saved. It's, it's always been this, you know, one people, many nations. The gospel is not confined to one nation. Mm-hmm. That's a great connection. And and there's also worth noting. I know we're going a little bit long, so we'll wrap Sorry. it up. No, that's all right. Oh, 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 oh. Um, there's a really cool connection because even that special presence of God, even that under the old covenant was dependent on the people's faithfulness because you remember in Ezekiel what happens the glory departs from the temple and there's almost like a recapitulation of what happens in Eden when man is cast out from the presence of God you have the presence of God leaving man and you know once again then there's this thirst for the dwelling place of God being with man and then finally when Christ God with us is brought into the world and then his spirit is poured out then you know you have that you know the way that God finally reconciles himself fully to man and will reach the consummation when completely God is dwelling with man. But yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. Are there any other questions? All right, let's pray. (coughs) Father, we do thank you for your excellent grace. We thank you, Lord, that Uh, You have planned and purposed your glorious uh, plan for history from all eternity, that you are reconciling all things in Christ Jesus, that you are uniting all things in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that we are um, a part of this grand plan of yours to bring glory to yourself. And Lord, that... We cannot know your mind. Your ways are inscrutable and incomprehensible. And yet, Lord, you have been so gracious as to pull back the curtain a little bit to give us these symbols and these types and these uh, historical developments to show us what you are doing, that you indeed, Lord, are building one kingdom of many nations, that you in Christ are bringing uh, your people to yourself. And Lord, that in his life, death and resurrection and ascension, we are absolutely certain that you will bring this work to fulfillment, that it is finished, it is as good as done. And so, Lord, I pray that even this that we're studying, which at times can become you know, high-level intellectual theology, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply this to our lives in that it gives us a more firm foundation for our faith and greater confidence that you are doing everything that you promise. And so for us, as members of your covenant and soldiers enlisted in your army, that we would go forth and make disciples of all nations, that we would proclaim Christ, and that we would live out the gospel of Christ in all that we do in every sphere of life and to your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.